0: This is real talk the customer insights show with jen vogel jen and her guests share valuable information to help you understand your customers better available wherever you listen to podcasts you can also ask alexa or siri to play real talk this episode is presented to you by vox pop me the leader in video surveys here's today's episode
1: hello insights professionals marketers and everyone who wants to understand their customers better Thank you for joining me for another episode of Real Talk, the Customer Insight Show. Communication can certainly be difficult. Um, people don't say what they mean. They sometimes don't say anything at all. And of course, if you're a fan of the show, you know, I always have plenty things, plenty of things to say. But it is a real problem out there in the real world, especially for businesses. Um So today I'm discussing that topic with Melina Palmer, podcast host, author, and instructor in behavioral science. Her new book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, just hit the bookshelves. I'm really looking forward to having her on today. Welcome, Melina. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Um, A lot of our listeners are really kind of on the you know, on insights teams and marketing teams and talking to customers and asking a lot of questions all the time. And I'm really excited to hear your perspective on what it is that customers need and can't tell us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. excited <laughs> to talk about it.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so what prompted you to write this book? And you know, what gap is it addressing in the market?
0: So my background. My undergrad is in marketing and I worked in brand strategy and whatnot for about 10 years. And when I did my undergrad, I had this like one section of one book, just like a little tidbit that was about this buying psychology that I thought was so fascinating. And I spent 10 years looking for you know, program that I could get some education in the space and nothing really existed. And when I finally found behavioral economics, I jumped all in and got my master's and did all of that. And what I realized is that I was very early in the space of applied behavioral economics. And so the field was very academic at that point, And really, even right now still is quite a bit. And to where the research is very important uh, but it wasn't giving businesses the tips that they needed to then go do something with it you know it's like we did this study and we found this isn't that cool and isn't that cool and isn't this cool <laughs> and it is but you know what do i do so i had started my podcast the brainy business three years ago and it just kind of exploded with interest from around the world which was awesome and you know still helping people to Understand in business how you can actually use behavioral economics and then wanting to take it one step further in that book format where you can just kind of keep going and it has little apply it sections at the end of every chapter just to really, really be able to use the information is what's most important to me.
1: That's wonderful. I love like an apply it section at the end of a chapter (laughs) in a business book. Like I I need to like have the very specific step by step of actually what to do with it for it to be valuable. So um, that's awesome. Um, And Could you, like, you talk about behavioral economics, just for our audience, can you define that in your own words? Like, what is behavioral economics?
0: Yes, especially, I know, because like I said, my background being in marketing, I, when I heard that was the name of it, the field, I went, really? Is that what I actually want (laughs) to study? So it it suffers from its own branding problem, Mm -hmm. I guess. But behavioral economics is essentially, you know, if psychology and traditional economics had a baby we would have behavioral economics and neuroscience is mixed in there as well. It's really that psychology behind buying decisions, why people will do things and understanding those rules. And then, like I said, what I, I do is help people in business to understand the rules the brain uses to make a decision and then use those in the way that they communicate so that
1: it's an easier
0: process for everybody.
1: Yeah, we might need to get a bunch of marketers together to give it a little rebrand. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> we talk um, about it in the field often. <laughs> I bet. I bet. It's interesting because a lot of the insights professionals and market researchers that I speak to in the industry you know, there are some who studied research or studied marketing in college, but there's a lot of people who were psychology majors who go into the insights field. So there is a very close correlation between understanding how people think and what motivates them and what kind of gets them to behave in certain ways um, and how businesses can use that to make sure they're meeting them where they are.
0: Absolutely. I got my master's in behavioral economics. From G. And so like I'm I'm all all in on that psychology piece and understanding the brain that it's fascinating to me. So
1: but is it that people have such a hard time um, really communicating properly?
0: So the issue is when we look at how the brain actually works, so when we think about our brains, if you were to just stop and say, What does my brain do? Anything that you can think about that came to mind is your cognitive conscious processing space. And we like to think that that's where we do most everything. We know there's a subconscious, but eh, don't really want to think about it too much. In reality, the subconscious... Is doing percent of the processing for every single person all the time. Wow. And so, if we put that into perspective and say, okay, then like 1% is this logical brain doing something. And you, when you sit down to create your pricing, your brand strategy, your marketing communication, you and your team are using this conscious part of what you logically think people should do, which we like to say is a four-letter word here at the Brainy Business. <laughs> and the thing is that people buy and make decisions using that subconscious part. And the two don't speak the same language or communicate well to one another. So even if you do, most of your listeners, I'm sure, have done some version of a survey or a focus group at some point, And you say, hey, if we put baking soda in our toothpaste, would you buy it? They say, yeah, baking soda sounds great. I would definitely buy that. And then they don't or whatever it is. They're not intentionally lying to you. They just don't know what's motivating the behavior because it's something that the subconscious is doing and not able to really let the conscious brain no. So, just really, it's like a gatekeeper receptionist process to where that subconscious is constantly filtering the world around to say, I know how to do that. I have a role for this. I know what to do about that. And every so often, we'll have to flag uh, the conscious and say, Oh, hey, I don't know what to do about this. You know, you're up. Uh, so, you have to get through the receptionist to get to that busy executive. And if you understand the rules that 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 receptionist uses to get things moving down the line, it's a much easier conversation.
1: Okay. This is very big. This is very big conversation right now. (laughs) Um, This is so interesting. So I'm connecting it with, I read a book recently that was on a totally unrelated topic, but it, it was talking about like relating that subconscious brain to the, you know, this is the same part of your brain that you know, regulates your body temperature and like all the things you don't have to think about doing. Like I don't choose to breathe. I don't choose to, you know, grow my fingernails. Like those are things that just my body just does. My brain just does. And so the thought that like my decisions on a day to day basis are also being made by that part of my brain, it's even hard for me to like wrap my head around. Like, I think i make conscious and logical decisions about everything that I do. And so when, like you were saying, Oh my gosh, there's so much rattling through my head right now. Sorry. I'm all (laughs) over the place. This is very exciting. Um, you know, that people aren't consciously lying when they're talking about what they will do or what they did do. Um, because you really do believe that you're making those decisions consciously. Um, So I guess I'm wondering, like, how do how do you kind of bridge that gap between like we don't even know as consumers or as people participating in research that we're maybe not saying what's actually true?
0: Yeah. So this is why the field came about at all in that traditional economics was assuming logical people making rational choices and everything they do. And you create a bunch of behavioral models that don't accurately predict behavior because we're not making those logical choices all the time. Uh, to give a little example to show how you can experience, you are experiencing this all the time. And so to show how this kind of works is the example of driving a car. So when you first learned to drive a car, it was really tedious and slow and difficult. And if you've ever tried to like hit the brake with your left foot or something, you know, if you don't drive you know stick shifts and that sort of thing, but like using the other foot and it's really like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> uh, but when you first learned to drive a car, it was a difficult process. And the last time you drove your car, it was probably really easy and you didn't have to think about anything at all. And that's because it's moved into that subconscious processing space. It doesn't need to clog up your conscious processing because your brain knows to check the mirrors and how to press the gas. And this one's on the right and that's on the left. And this is what I'm doing. And you don't even have to think about it until maybe you're driving over a mountain, uh, pass in the pouring rain between a semi-truck and a guardrail and you can kind of feel everything slow down and focus in on what you're doing in that moment. That's really like the subconscious handing it over to the conscious and saying like, well, this is the most important thing we should do right now and nothing else matters. Just keep us safe. So also when you go through the grocery store, whatever it is, those rules are still happening uh, and don't necessarily have to think about where you step and where your eyes are looking and scanning and what catches your attention. So what behavior economics has done is it has been looking at trying to find the common threads, the rules that the subconscious is using to be able to more accurately predict behavior. And so my book, I picked 16 of these concepts that are most relevant and important as saying and break them down say this is what happens this matters. here's a little bit of how you can use this concept and then we'll also go in part three which is looking at combine some of them for more expansive processing and things along those lines
1: interesting so um the, what you said about driving is so true. Like I, I realized that I tried to teach a sixteen-year-old how to drive recently, and you realize how much you don't actually know how to drive mm-hmm. <laughs> because you just do it. Like, yep. which pedal do I press? I'm like, I don't, I'm not actually sure. Like, <laughs> right. but um, so I guess what are the different things that would trigger that handover from the subconscious to the conscious? mind like you mentioned like safety right like you're driving and it's like (laughs) so the nice thing is
0: you, you don't have to worry about the handover if you can just focus on that ninety nine percent and making it easy to go through the process. So, one of the concepts and the first one that I have in this that section of the book is framing, and this is essentially how you say something matters much more than what it is that you are actually saying. If you were to imagine you're going into the grocery store at spaghetti night and you need to pick up some beef. And you get there to the stacks of meat, and there's one that's labeled as 90% fat-free, and the stack next to it is labeled as 10% fat. Which one sounds better, and do you feel like you want to buy? Most everybody, and I've done this... All around the world. And everybody says 90% fat free, it sounds and feels better. I want that, you know, 10% fat, you think, yeesh, I haven't been to the gym in like 18 months. Where's that's going to go? I don't want that at all. And 90% fat free feels like this great decision for your family and yourself. It's the same, right? (laughs) It's exactly the same, but our brain hears it differently because of that frame and the way the information is presented. And that tiny tweak can make a huge difference. So even just in that marketing aspect, looking at where you might be communicating your own 10% fat that you can change over to be a 90% fat free is a huge shift. And it just flows to be an easier decision. And especially if you can look at where maybe your competitors are messaging, like the entire industry is messaging 10% fat. How can you be the 90% fat free message to where it's much easier to choose you? People don't have to explain why. But they're just going to pick that one over the others, even if you wouldn't sit down in the focus group and say, "Well, that label didn't appeal to me; it made me feel gross."
1: Right. <laughs> they don't know that, <laughs> and it doesn't
0: matter. But you know the behavior you're trying to change, and a lever you can pull to help make that an easier decision for people.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of marketers are always battling with like, how do we, how do you simplify your message so that people understand it more quickly. And I think uh, oftentimes, what we're saying is like, how can people understand it subconsciously, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and make it easier for them to make those decisions? Yeah. Um, so here's where, like, you know, I think this is a tricky topic for a lot of our audience here. And uh, for the research and customer experience market is, you know, we still want to ask people for their opinions right so like how does this um idea that people you know can't really tell us what to do marry up with our desire to talk to them so i'm a big fan of
0: observational research to be sure and to where you can actually just see someone the product or walking down the aisle or, you know, asking them then kind of, oh, why'd you do that? And, you know, get some answers looking into, there's a lot of interesting work with metaphors and things that are getting into different areas of that brain processing. When you ask questions, I think it's always good to ask customers why they think they're doing something too. So you get an idea and it can uncover something you didn't even know to think about or that was a problem or a perceived problem that needs to be overcome, uh, by existing customers or those who haven't bought from you yet and just don't take the first thing they say as the gospel truth and know that there's good benefit in asking more open-ended questions and learning as much as you can. And that testing is really important to where a lot of times people will ask, you know, would you buy in this one or this one or which ad is more appealing to you? And people will in the research study say, I don't like this. It feels offensive to me. I wouldn't move forward with it because it's framed as a loss. Um, and I I wouldn't like that. And then you go test it in real life and people are and over and over and over again to be more motivated by losses than gains. And it always works better, right? And not always, but really (laughs) always works better when it's framed in that way. And so to still do some testing based on what you find, still ask those questions. Uh, We also have now, so I teach through the Human Behavior Lab at Texas A&M University. We do um, eye tracking and EEG scanning and facial recognition and uh, skin response, all these things that can be looked at at one time where we can get 600 data points per second when someone's looking at an ad or seeing what's lighting up in their brain, all these things. And you can then use that information to see what's actually happening. If their pupils dilated, if they made just a fraction of a second, their face, you know, you had some brow furrow or something when they were looking Mm -hmm. at a website. So, you know, their attention is actually bad because they were confused versus you know, saying, well, somebody looked here for a really long time, they must be interested in it. (laughs) They actually might be going, what? (laughs) That's not good at all. So yeah, bringing all that data together is something you can combine with asking questions and that real world application.
1: Yeah. So what I'm wondering now is like, you know, there there are definitely a lot of businesses out there that are using some of the tools and technologies that you've talked about and eye tracking and, you know, emotional recognition and things like that. But it sounds like I guess I'm curious, like, what sort of skill set should companies be hiring for to be able to analyze this data effectively? Because it's very different from um, looking at a pie chart of you know, A, B, C, D answer choices in a survey.
0: Right. So the for my book is catered toward people in business who are looking to be trying to do this themselves where you don't necessarily have budget to bring in a team of experts, or you don't have the buy-in from others yet. And you just want to start using it on your own. And there are a lot of ways that you can do just like that simple framing I was talking about, right? There are 16 concepts in there that you're able to test on your own and start using. When you if you, yourself, or if as a company, and you're saying, what do we do here? You can do that internal approach. You know, There are companies that now have a chief behavioral officer or a nudge unit, as it's called, inside some of these businesses to where you're looking at this behavioral science aspect and how it works across your entire organization and really going all in on behavioral science. That is an option. You can also look and say, Hey, we know we want our marketing to be really effective, just like there are a lot of companies that have an internal marketing department, but they reach out to an advertising agency or whatever it is, a PR firm, when they really, like, it's a big deal that this goes right, we're going to bring in our big guns. You know, there are behavioral science, behavioral economist teams that can help to make sure that all this is being brought in. Like I do that, there are tons around the world uh, and more coming up all the time. And so I think that model is one that's gonna work for a lot of businesses. And then as you start doing those experiments with experts in the field, you can determine, you know, is this something we should be bringing in house or do we just use experts when we need them and get their advice on what we're gonna do in our A-B testing the rest of the time
1: i'm relating a lot to like some of the things that you're talking about because you know we do a lot of our own message testing and you know we put things out and uh we do we do research on different campaigns and messaging and all types of things and once you put it out into the market (laughs) it it performs very differently from how it tests whether it outperforms or underperforms you know it's not necessarily an indicator of of how things are going to work so um i love that you know, the kind of framework and the concepts that you've put out in this book are very simple that, you know, just anyone can adopt and like understand. And then there's, there are experts like you and others that can really help with companies who want to do this. Um, like you said, bring in, bring in the big, big guns.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I like to help you know, small business is very important to me. In addition to, I work with big global corporate clients, but I also think entrepreneurs need help. And if someone is not specifically making sure that they know these things, they're going to fall behind. And I think that would be a real disservice to everybody. So being able to give this information in a way that people can use even if you're an entrepreneur and it's just you and you wanna attest with. I I give a story in the book of one of my clients who owned a piercing and jewelry shop and how she put in some of our tips on pricing to the way that she was presenting information when people called to ask, you know, how much does it cost to get ears pierced? And using uh, tips like anchoring and relativity and framing these concepts, she had her average ticket size double More than double just by changing the way she had that initial conversation with people and how she talked about her offering, which is exactly the same as what it was before. But that little shift can be hugely impactful.
1: I love how simple you make it sound. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if it was truly that easy, everyone would do it, right? So, yeah, I, you know, I give you a lot of credit for what you're doing. Um, but yeah, it, it does sound like it can be very, you know, maybe not easy, but but simple. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we recently had a conversation on the show with Dr. Graham Kenny about a mix of big data and talking to customers. You know. I guess, how does behavioral economics kind of play with the quantitative data, the, the customer conversations, um, and, you know, understanding behavior as well?
0: Yeah, it it's definitely, so 2020 was a year where I think every single conference was looking at this question of big data and behavioral science and how they go together. And then everything got put on hold. (laughs) And so I think that is a place that is very much this like next frontier space of what a lot of people are looking at in the field. I, the way I've been talking and thinking about this from a marketing perspective is really, if you look at the qualitative quantitative side of a conversation, so your qualitative research, and there, of course, are a lot of quantitative things we can do in the behavioral sciences. But If you think about like the new QUAL is behavioral economics, behavioral science, asking these sorts of questions of behavior and what you're trying to influence and why someone might be doing that and thinking about the brain in that psychological way. And then the quantitative being then looking at the data to see if it did what you expected and looking at data maybe and saying, this is weird. Why did that happen? And let's ask some qualitative research questions. You know, you can be tying those in and think about it in that way as how they work together. And they both enhance the other and really, but if you you see the data, just even giving that example, I was saying about the intentional, uh, the, or the focus of attention on a website or something. And so if you say, well, everyone's looking at this for a really long time, your data might show you that, or the, you know, you like to say on the website, this page is the best page because people are spending 25 minutes on it and they only spend three minutes on all of our other pages. Yeah. <laughs> But I was like, why are people spending such a long time on this page? Is it actually helpful or is it confusing? And how could you make it better? What might be happening? What lever do we want to pull? And you can really balance those out. They work very well together to keep that process going and uncovering the real behaviors at play that you then want to use the proper concepts and then contest and see how it worked on the data side.
1: I love that. I love that there's this. Sort of look maybe sequential in, in which these different methodologies can work together. It's like you know using the qualitative to identify what questions do I want to ask in a quantitative way, and then identifying those areas you don't understand. We see that a lot with our customers where they use quality because they're seeing patterns in the data. They're seeing patterns, mm-hmm. in it and you know to in order to understand root cause or you know what's driving that data. To, why there needs to be a conversation with her or you know digging deeper into why, um, and I think that 's really powerful when it 's used together. Um, I think we also see a lot of these methodologies sort of merged together. Where it's you know, let's do it all in one study in one project, and um, that tends to be you know maybe less effective than that sort yeah. of sequential like you know like iteration, right? like different standing with each step.:
0: Yes, yes, please don't just do it all in one <laughs> <laughs> It's the same on the market. I think there are so many steps. Experience to where you know, someone else says, like, Well, we're doing the survey anyway, let's just ask these 25 other questions. <laughs> <laughs> we're sending the direct mailer, we might as well put all this other stuff on there, and you would fight against that. And now you have a reason to know why it just doesn't work very well with the brain. Uh, but same thing when you're doing a test, just having a single thing you're trying to figure out in this instance is so important. And I like to talk about that in, you know, with marketing pieces and, you know, first steps and things you should be doing is if you look at this one thing and say, if people can only do one thing from this piece, this Facebook ad, let's say, if I can only get people to do one thing, what is it that I want them to do? And to say, buy uh, probably isn't the action people are going to take on Facebook sometimes, but not necessarily. So maybe it's about engagement. Is it about a like, is it about them following you? Is it about a comment? Do you want them to go to your website? You know, If you only get one, what's the most important one and how can you put every single egg in that basket and really dial in to make it very clear what you're asking them to do? and what the next step is. So they don't get distracted because, you know, you're competing with all the other things on Facebook or Instagram or Netflix or other stuff going on in their life all the time.
1: Yeah. And that, that entertainment space <laughs> is not getting any less saturated. <laughs> <We're> just, no, <laughs> There's just more and more competition out there between, you know, business and like you said, Netflix shows and ads and all different types of things. So um For businesses who maybe are, you know, people in the research industry or whatever, who this is all new to them, a new concept, um, where would you recommend they get started? Like, what would be the first thing to do? It After feels like,
0: the, <laughs> I was going to say, feels like the easy response is to say, you should get my book. Yes. Um, <laughs> so there is that. I also have my podcast, The Brainy Business, which has over well over 150 episodes now and digs in on, you know, I have episodes about the top five wording mistakes businesses make. And then it's going into a bunch of the behavioral concepts at play. Uh, There are also specific episodes on, like, this is what loss aversion is and why it works and some of the research and how you can use it. I also have interviews with experts in the field, uh, or we'll talk about, like, this is the behavioral economics of Starbucks or Costco, like what I see when I look at Disney and things that are working for them that you can then relate in your own business. Uh, a lot of those come in in the book as well. But if you just want a little sampling, that's available. And you can also get a free chapter of my book if you wanted to see how that all works. <laughs> so I think that's a good option. Uh, you can also go to behavioraleconomics.com, But most of what's in the world outside of my own book. And, you know, this is why I chose to write it is very, very, very academic. And it's a lot of journal research articles with P values and variance and statistical significance. I'm happy to talk about that for anybody that wants it, but I also like try to make it so you don't have to dig into those big papers to try to make the conclusion. So I would say, that my podcast and and book are very much catered toward this. And there was a real gap. So there are some other options, but that's where I would start.
1: Amazing. Well, I, I was lucky enough to get a little advanced copy of Molina's book. So I will highly recommend it to everyone out there. Um, And just thank you so much for joining us today. And I think this was like such an interesting topic for me and there probably are some listeners out there who will dive into some of those academic papers and be really into it so (laughs) go for it and um uh yeah this has been a really exciting conversation so thank you so much
0: yeah thank you so much for having me I always have links to all those academic journals and things in show notes for the episode the book has over 200 citations so there's plenty to go find if you want it
1: (laughs) I'm sure some people will take you up on that. (laughs) Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. Don't forget to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, I'm joined by Scott Brinker to discuss the Martech landscape. See you then.